Hello, and welcome into Airing It Out, a Penn State podcast brought to you by the Center Daily Times. I'm your host, John Sauber, and seated to my right is Josh Moyer. Josh, how are you doing? Uh, much, much better than Pat Narduzzi. I-, I can promise you that. Yeah, I don't – oh, man. And we're obviously going to start here. I don't think anyone should be surprised that we're going to start here. Like, you say much better, though. I think he seems content with how dumb of a decision he made, which is probably the scariest uh, part. I don't know. I mean, he- he's got to be in denial a little bit. I feel like if you know anything about football or even if you've been around it for longer than 15 minutes, you know the call that was made in Saturday's game was nothing short of atrocious it was a disaster one of the worst calls i have ever witnessed in my entire life at any level of football and yeah i used to go to my uh my my godson's you know peewee midget football games okay those were terrible there were some bad calls there running for it on fourth and 20 this was worse yeah and i've played i've had a full career of playing madden i've made some terrible calls there and yet somehow i was outdone by pat narduzzi on fourth and goal Saturday. Just to lay the land, of course, we're talking about the the play where Pat Narduzzi decides to kick a field goal, which the kicker then missed and hit off the upright, mind you. So they didn't even get any of the points for it. Let's just set this up. I mean, I'm sure everyone has has heard of it by now, but maybe Penn State fans need need a smile or, you know, you just need to (laughs) jog your memory a little bit. But there's less than five minutes left in the game. It's fourth and goal at the one-yard line, and you're down seven points. What play do you dial up? Pat Narduzzi may have taken a may as well taken a damn knee at that point. Goes for the field goal, misses the field goal. But even if he makes it, you know, Pat, I mean, honestly, that might have been better for Penn State because they would have had better field position on the ensuing kickoff. I mean, what what happened in Saturday's game is freaking inconceivable. Like that, I mean, it, it was almost like he was trying to throw the game. The only way that 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 makes sense is if Narduzzi's got money on the game. And I say that tongue-in-cheek. I don't think he's actually betting. But that's how stupid, terrible, cowardly. I mean, we could just go through a whole dictionary of terrible, you know, synonym adjectives here because, I mean, I, I've never seen anything like that. The the word you used that described it best to me is cowardly because we saw numerous occasions where they should have gone for it on fourth down late in that game, and they chose not to because they were trying not to lose that game. And you saw it a couple years ago when this game was played at Penn State too. Pat Narduzzi was running the ball down 19 when they should have been throwing the ball and trying to win a game. And, of course, that was two years ago. But it seems like he's scared to lose to Penn State more than anything rather than trying to win the game. And, and the idea that – I mean – the lead-up to the play was awful, too. You know, they, they tried two oh, pass yeah. attempts. They tried to run with Kenny Pickett. You, I mean, you have, you have a good, two good running backs that you can just jam it at Penn State right up the middle, and you can go at it four times, take four shots at it. Mathematically, that is your best chance of converting there, and they didn't do it. And then the only thing worse than the actual call was the explanation. And I remember we, oh, were, yeah. we were sitting in the press room, and I read the tweet saying what – you know, wait, we were waiting for James Franklin – and I read the tweet of what his response was, and I was almost inconsolable at the idiocy of it. I don't know how you come to the conclusion. Basically, he said that they needed two scores to win the game there, so why not get the field goal there? Uh, and, and I don't Does know he not you... know what a two-point conversion is? Does he not have any idea what a two – they were down seven. If you want to win the game, score the touchdown and go for two. But instead, you know, kick the field goal, play like a coward, and lose like a coward. I, I don't know if you if you listen to the audio, but 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 uh, Penn Live's own Dave Jones asked him after he said that that it was a two possession game. If you're trying to win, you know, Dave Jones asked, "Well, if that's your mindset, what about a two point conversion?" And Narduzzi just ignored that and continued on, just <laughs> just like when he was asked again Monday. Pat Narduzzi was asked again Monday. One reporter laid it all out for him. You know, you said you trusted your defense, Pat. So. Wouldn't it behoove you to, even if you don't score this touchdown, 
You trust your defense to get a stop. Worst case scenario, you get the ball at the 50-yard line, and everything is the same. You still need to score that touchdown. And, you know, you could see Narduzzi just getting frustrated. And, you know, he scratched his brow, and he was clearly agitated, and he just, you know, was like, you know, I just explained this, so I'll explain it one more time. And then he proceeded not to explain it and just ended the answer, and that was that. I think Pat Narduzzi knows he made a gigantic mistake. I don't think Pat Narduzzi wants to admit he made a gigantic mistake because the only other alternative is that he is the dumbest man in all of college football. And listen, I don't think he's a fantastic, you know, amazing coach, but he's better than the worst. Yeah. And this was like, I mean, I, I'm getting angry thinking about the stupidity of this because he hands the, he hands. Oh yeah. It ruined it, it, it. I mean, that could have been, I mean, I was thinking about that. I was thinking back to the, I mean, okay, Penn State fans aren't going to like this, but the Alabama goal line stand against Penn State, and I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is Penn State's goal line stand. They're going to stop them four times in a row here. And then they walk out the field goal unit, and even Jan Johnson, you know, Penn State's linebacker, admitted afterwards, he's like, I, it had to be a fake. I thought it was a fake. I mean, I didn't, you know, you just don't think someone's going to go for a field goal in that, you know, in that situation. I mean, it, it, it is three days later. It is still freaking mind-boggling. Yep, and, and it's one of those decisions that you look back on, and if he gets fired at the end of the year, oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're probably going to be one and three. They play UCF this week. I, I mean, know, I'm not picking them to win that game. The only, the only thing you need on his epitaph is, is just a picture of that play. You don't even need to say anything else. You just need that play. Because this, for Pat Narduzzi, this was the beginning of the end. I mean, for a large section of that game, Pitt outplayed Penn State, or Penn State outplayed itself. And... Yeah, that was that was Pitt's game right there, at least to tie. And I mean, my goodness. I mean, what 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 else can you say? I mean, I feel like you know everyone's talked about this nonstop just because. I mean, again, this this rivalry started in 1893. The bad blood started in 1896. I mean, this game has been played since you know more than half the homes in the U.S. were lit by candlelight, and in throughout all of that, this might still be the dumbest, most idiotic play. In a, in a series that has spanned three different centuries. Like, that is saying something. Yeah, and there's, there's no justification either. You know, usually you can, there's a silver lining in all this, but it, is, it's, it makes zero sense. There's not – and, you know, even you know, James Franklin said in his press conference after the game that, you know, he sort of, like, explained it away as sort of what Narduzzi was thinking about. Oh, he, he thought he had to get two scores. Oh, you know, Narduzzi, no one in their right mind privately is like, oh, you know, I see what he was doing. That's, no, no, I yeah. can – you know, I, I, you know, James Franklin and I aren't BFFs or anything, but I guarantee you behind the scenes, James is like, what in the hell was he thinking? Yeah, and like we said, to hand the game away, it's the 100th edition of this game. It's the last time that they are scheduled to play each other for who knows how long, and, and you just hand the game away like that. It is, it is baffling. It's mind-blowing. It's, and it's a scenario where you have a team that's one and one and needs to get a win, and don't, the way to ignite them is to, to go for it. Show confidence in your offense, too. And like, even if you want to talk about it from that perspective and not from the analytics perspective, which, by the way, says that you should be going for it and going for two, especially in a road environment like Penn State. But if you want to talk about it from a just believing in your guys standpoint, you should absolutely be going for it there and just makes the decision to turtle up and kick, try to kick a field goal, which they then miss uh, listen, from 19 yards out. I, I feel like we could talk about this for the next hour. But, but one last point I'll, I'll, I'll make uh, is just that, 100 meetings, man. 100 meetings. And Pat Narduzzi said Monday, he, he half joked. He was just joking around that, you know, we could talk about this for the next 10 years. And then he stopped himself. He's like, you know what? And, and we probably will because, you know, there's not going to be another game in 10 years. But 
you know, in all honesty, as long as football is still a sport 100 years from now, people are still going to be talking about that play because of how idiotic it was. I mean, this is, this is one of those plays that transcends time because of its sheer idiocy. And, and, and you know, so that's all I'll say about it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the main takeaway from an otherwise pretty ugly game, I would say, uh, you know, from, from both Ugliest teams. Fair. Yeah, and it was, you know, a, an ugly situation too. You know, uh, everyone's waiting because, you know, there's a lightning delay and where everyone's waiting for kickoff. I believe we kicked at 1240 was the time that, that ended up correct. being kicked off. Uh, so there, there was a delay there. There were traffic issues at the stadium. So, you know, it was just an ugly day capped off by just a brutal decision that almost makes you forget all the other issues, you know, from, from the Penn State side of things with, with the team. And, you know, we'll start as we are going to start most of these podcasts with. And unless we see more coaches make the decisions that Pat Narduzzi We made. might never see that again in our yeah. lifetimes. I don't think we will. But, but most times we'll start with this topic, and that's Sean Clifford and how he played this weekend. What did you think of his performance against his first Power Five, you know, and his first Power Five opponent start? Meh. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> if I could sum it up in one non-word, that's what it would be. I mean, Sean Clifford still has yet to throw an interception. I mean, he's clearly shown flashes, but I feel like we still have yet to see him consistently put everything together. I mean, you know, I, I feel like right now he, he certainly practiced better than he's played in games. Uh, we've seen limited, uh, you know, limited – time and practice but when we have been there and we have watched him I mean he's having no problem throwing 30 yard bombs that fall right into the the, the arms of the receiver he's still you know overthrowing receivers at some point not putting you know balls quite where they need to be uh you know he didn't even complete half of his passes uh you know against Penn and I think his QBR was was under 50 I want to say that that average is is right about 50 so yeah I mean it you know I, I it's just hard to rate him right now, I feel like, because we've only kind of scratched the surface right now with what he's capable of. We both know that Sean Clifford is capable of more, but, you know, it's getting to the point. I mean, we're, we're a quarter of the way through this regular season now. I mean, it's about time, you know, to start putting all those things together. We need to see clear progression from one week to the next, and, and I'm not so sure we've seen that. Yeah, and, you know, I think this – this sort of almost justifies some of my concerns that I had at the beginning because we're still not seeing those those moments that you want to see with a with a kid that has the potential that he does. And we've, like you said, we've seen him that he we both believe he has a high ceiling and a chance. You know, he is the ceiling that you can lead a team to the college football playoff. I don't think I'm I'm off base saying that. You know, if he reaches his peak, but you know, right now it doesn't seem like he's going to get anywhere close to that ceiling because of the way he's playing. And this is a this is a pit defense that isn't like. I mean, it's fine. The secondary is good. Yeah. But it's a cover four defense that they run. The, I mean, they've run the same defense every year since Mark D'Antonio started at Michigan State and Pat Narduzzi left and took it with him. And you don't see a lot of, you know, extravagance from it. And, and Clifford still struggled. You know, and some of that was, you know, there were plays guys ran wrong routes. I mean, we saw it on Penn State's yeah, last offensive yeah. drive of the game where it looked like K.J. Hamler ran the wrong play there. And, you know, uh, James Franklin said that a player did, and, you know, I think it's and safe yeah, to there, there, You know, there's there's certainly been a few drops this season as well. Certainly not as bad as last year, but that's still been, you know, a persistent issue. And, you know, there's been some injuries. I mean, we saw Daniel George going off the field, not against Pitt, but, you know, against Buffalo. Uh, you know, he had a, an air cast around his arm. So, I mean, you know, yeah, there's, there's, there's other things that certainly factor into this. I mean, the offensive line isn't exactly giving him oodles of time either. There's a lot working against Sean Clifford, but – like you said, you kind of you'd expect him to, you know, rise above it, you know, a little bit faster. So I'm certainly not, you know, pushing the the, the panic button on Sean Clifford yet. 
you know, we, we both agree there's still a lot of potential there. There's a lot of reason to be optimistic. But, you know, I think it's getting to the point where, you know, he needs to, to you know, make a, a big jump quickly or, you know, this team is going to stagnate. And, and, you know, 17-10 against Pitt, uh, you know, losing to Buffalo at halftime, I mean, that's what happens when, when you don't see the progression that you'd like. Yeah, and, you know, now we're going to get into Big Ten play, too, where it's, you know, those warm-up games are gone. You're playing a Maryland team next week. You know, obviously, we're on by this week. You know, you know, I get a nice little break from the action, uh, you know. But the, this this team needs to take that time to sort of figure out what's going on on offense. And, you know, we're going to go back to this well a lot. But the play calling also wasn't great this weekend. I know. You shocking, know, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's, it's almost like they don't have, like, an amazing offensive coordinator. And, and that's part of the issue, too, with Clifford is he's not being a put – put in a position where he can succeed at his absolute best. Uh, he's, you know, he's in a position where he can play well and he can play better than he has, but he's also not in a position to do everything he can to help this team win football games. And I mean, that falls at the feet of Ricky Ronnie. And part of it too, I think is they're the running back rotation. Yes. The, I understand the by committee approach and I th do think it's the right approach, but having the idea that you have a set number of drives that each guy is going to get going into a yeah. game. I don't agree with that at all. And especially this weekend. And I wrote about, you know, Noah Kane being the turning point of this game, that drive that he had where Penn State scored yeah, that touchdown that. to make it 17-10, and then he doesn't see the field the rest of the game. He was he was done for the game after that, you know, and he was he was dominant when he was out there. Six carries for 40 yards. Uh, he had a reception, I believe, as well for 13 yards. Yeah, so he had 53. I want to say it was an 85-yard drive. Yep. And, you know, and he had the touchdown. I mean, that is absolutely huge. You can't – if Noah Kane doesn't see the field at all Saturday – this game is probably going to overtime. Well, actually, Pitt's probably winning because if it's a tie game, Pat Narduzzi is okay to go for a field goal. Yeah, and, and you know, if Kane was the second best back. I don't think there's any argument there. Journey Brown was pretty good again. He was, he was better in pass protection. I, I thought, you know, he, I mean, he's clearly better in the open field than Kane is. I don't think anyone will argue that. Yeah, I, I will say this, though. I mean, you know, everyone's, you know, talking about Journey Brown. And, you know, if you just look at the stats, oh, he averaged 10 yards a carry. But you take away the 85-yard run, which I know. I mean, it's an 85-yard run. But my point is, you look at his other nine carries, they went for a total of 24 yards. He was not consistent. You know, again, like this offense – you know, he was explosive at times, but other times, you know, it was kind of a dud. I mean, uh, you know, whereas Noah Kane, it was just for one drive, but he was consistently, you know, getting yards every carry. And it goes back to what we talked on the podcast before. I mean, if you have an offensive line that's, that's not giving you a lot of holes, then Noah Kane's running style, I feel like, is a wonderful fit. And I mean, geez, we, we, we saw that up close in Pitt. And at least, you know, fans you know, again, I'm not a very optimistic person in, in case you haven't caught on to that yet, but at least James Franklin did say during the post-game press conference, he acknowledged, yeah, you know, we, we probably should have gotten Noah Kane involved there in that final drive because of how well he did. I mean, that's something I feel like that happens again. They're going to learn from it and not do that. But, but I agree. I mean, I thought I would like this running back rotation a lot more, but when you already come in with preconceived notions and you know, before I thought Penn State was going to be more flexible, adapt a little bit more if someone's got a hot hand. Noah Kane had the hot hand. Go with Noah Kane. Yeah, and, and I think the, the biggest issue to me is, one, those situations where you need to grind it out like that, Kane's got to be getting the ball, period. And the other thing is, 
when you have someone like Journey Brown who has the world-class speed that he does because he has it, you know, he, he needs to be getting the ball on the edge. He needs to be getting the ball in the open field, and they're not doing that enough right now. We saw Kane catch a swing pass for his – I believe it was a swing pass on his own reception of the day when he got the 13 yards. That's a ball that Journey Brown should be getting routinely, you know, when you can get two wide receivers blocking downfield for him because he's shown that he can break those big runs when he gets, you know, in the open field. And obviously he got run down on the 85-yard run, but, you know, he mentioned slowing up because he allowed Justin Shorter to, to you know, make the block on the guy that had the angle on him. I mean, Shorter, I mean, he a little, little dash of Heinz Ward here, isn't he? I mean, I've kind of been impressed early on. You know, he's he's six foot four. he's downfield, he's blocking. I mean, he has made some good downfield blocks. Yeah, and and the, one, the thing that impressed me most about that run, and I turned to you after the play and said, did you see Shorter? Because not only did he make the block, he was 15 yards behind Journey Brown, who may be the fastest player on the team, and Shorter caught him. And that's, I mean, he's so long once he gets to full speed, you know, he can get going probably faster than anyone on the team. It just takes longer to get up to that gear. But he, he ran down Journey Brown, and of course, like I said, Brown slowed up. But still, that's that's wildly impressive. I mean, you see the tools that this kid has and the – the blocking that you mentioned is is part of the buy-in. You know, to be a good blocker, you got to buy into the offense. You got to buy into what you're doing. And that, I mean, that's a pretty good sign of that. But back to the running backs, I think another takeaway from this game was Ricky Slade just hasn't been good. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to talk about him. I mean, well, well can I can I uh, you know bring up a question with your with your topic? I'm curious. How would you rate one through four? The four running backs. It's funny. I was going to ask you this. After well, you this. go first. Great I'll tell you why you're wrong. And then, and then I'll go. So I, right now, as it stands, I still have, I think there are two tiers to this. And I mean, it, to me, it's, it's Brown, Ford, then Kane. And then the second tier by himself is Ricky Slade. He just hasn't been good. And there's nowhere. I mean, he caught that nice angle route that, that James Franklin mentioned. But, I mean. Yeah, about a 40-yard catch. That, yeah. was, that was a nice play, certainly. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's also a play that, I mean, you probably see Brown and Ford make, too. You know, and, but they add more to the game than just that receiving ability. And, you know, Slade hasn't run the ball well this year. I mean, the touch has really dropped off this week. I believe he was at six total with only four of them being on rushes. You know, uh, he was he was the only back to catch more than one pass, but he only caught two, and the one, like you said, was the big play. He just, you know, he seems to be giving them reason to play Ford, Kane, and Brown more. And, I mean, we saw it this week. Brown got the start, and I don't think that's going to change unless Devin Ford takes it from him down the road, which is something I predicted at the beginning of the year. And I still think that can happen too. But, but Journey Brown's been really impressive, and I think that's got to be the main takeaway that, you know, Slade has almost worked himself we're, – we're teetering on him working himself out of the rotation. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think it's 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 difficult to rank the top four backs, but it's not difficult to rank right now who belongs at number four. And, you know, it you kind of feel for Ricky Slade because it, it's three weeks. No one has gotten more than 10 carries. I mean, yeah. it could just be the fact that, you know, there hasn't been a lot of room and, you know, we don't have a very high sample size with Slade. But certainly it's got to be concerning when, okay, here's this guy who, who last year was supposed to be the heir apparent to, to Miles Sanders and Saquon Barkley, and after three weeks, he is sixth on the team in rushing behind two true freshmen, you know, Journey Brown, Sean Clifford, and walk-on Nick Yuri. Yuri right now has more rushing yards on the season than, than, than Ricky Slade, which, okay, I mean, I don't care how high on Ricky Slade you are. No one saw that coming before the season, you know, if, if, if Slade was healthy. So, yeah, I mean, certainly there are concerns there. But for me, I mean, I really like Noah Kane. And the thing is, with Penn State's explosive offense where they live and die on the big play, you know, he's not the best fit to be the, the number one starting every down back. I like, 
I like Noah Kane a lot, and, you know, we saw in the drive just how important he can be. But I feel like, you know, Devin Ford and Journey Brown right now is kind of 1A, 1B in terms of, you know, guys who can make a difference, you know, fit well on this offense, have the speed, you know, to take it every time. So, yeah, I think it's it's kind of those two, you know, then Kane very close third and, uh, you know, Ricky like Slade ellipsis, though. ellipsis, yeah. Ricky Slade. Would you you have Brown ahead of Ford still, though? Uh, you know, I I am not sure about I You know, I guess at this point you have to put Journey Brown just right. because even in the last game he averaged close to, to – against Buffalo, he saw limited time, but he averaged close to five yards of carry and, you know, was kind of the, the, the most, you know, respectable, uh, you know, uh, of, of a lot of the running backs. So, so yeah, I mean, there's there's been a – there's been a lot of uh, a bit of a mixed bag, let's say, with the running backs, I think, so far this season. And, you know, a lot of that you can put on the offensive line. But, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Ricky Slade, you know, his ball security being a concern in game two. Um, you know, he's when you have four running backs all competing for time, if you make a mistake, that's not going to endear you to the coaching staff. I mean, he's got to clean that up. And, and you know, we've got to see more of those 40-yard catches and a, a lot fewer of those, you know, stopped at the line. Yeah, and I think a lot of credit has to go to Journey Brown, though. Going into this season, when he was coming off a suspension, he was away from the team. You've got two true freshman running backs that are both highly rated. The incumbent that is assumed to be the starter and Ricky Slade ahead of him. You've got, I mean, it's easy to go into the season and say, oh, Journey Brown's the clear number four guy. And all oh, of a sudden, yeah. we're three weeks in, and he's the lead back on this team. Oh, I'll be completely honest. I, I, I thought, you know, I thought James Franklin was just kind of playing lip service to Journey Brown in the offseason to an extent because – you know, he, he didn't want Journey Brown to transfer. And I thought Brown was important just so he could add some temporary depth until the two true freshmen were, were ready to go. I, I just saw Journey Brown as a bridge, to be completely honest with you, between Ricky Slade and, and the two true freshmen. But I think Journey Brown's proven himself, you know, over and over again already this season that, yeah, he, he he's not just a stopgap. I mean, this is a guy who can who can really play. You know, I thought he was kind of an athlete who was playing football. You know, I thought – this was this was a guy who was going to be like you know kind of an Alex Kenny you know type of player, but I mean he's shown he's he's a lot more than that. He's he has good vision, you know he knows uh, you know when to bounce it outside, and I mean he's done a great job, you know thus far. He's he's easily been the best running back. Yeah, and you know the one thing that could improve his play and the play of the rest of the running backs is if this offensive line can put it together for a full game. That's a big if, John. Yeah, it's a massive if at this point. I mean, we're not talking – we're not sanctions level offensive line just yet, but this line has not been good. I mean, it's a talented line. There's no reason they should be struggling this much. And they are, you know, relatively young, so you would give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, that that guys like Rasheed Walker and, uh, you know, Mike Miranda can can sort of – and C.J. Thorpe, obviously, too, can sort of – grow as the season moves along but right now they're not there yet and and you know it's it's got to be concerning for Penn State and if you're a Penn State fan because you've seen this story before this when this yeah. offensive line struggles this team isn't good the only thing that masked it was the year that you know the years that Joe Moorhead was here and he was you know making those play calls to help disguise the fact that their offensive line was putrid and now you've got an offensive coordinator that just isn't doing that and they're not in a position to succeed right now and you know, it makes you wonder, is this is this team only going to go as far as the offensive line takes it? I mean, you you know, what's the old saying? You're only as good as your weakest link. And, you know, let's be honest, right now, I mean, we could have said this, geez, what, like every year since 2012, every year but one year since 2012, the weak link on this offense is the offensive line. And, you know, it's really a shame, John, because, you know, 
you look at you look at Matt Limegrover, and as an offensive line coach, everywhere he's gone, he's succeeded. Minnesota, they had great offensive lines, and you know then he comes here, and you know it's just not working. I mean, he's he has so much more talent here than he did Minnesota, and he said as much when he first got here. You know, uh, you know, I, I think part of the interview was was you know uh, those two talking like you know, hey, we don't have a lot of depth here right now, but you know, if you, if you, you know, look at, you know, our players and how young they are and, and their talent and ability, uh, you know, like, Hey, you know, what do you think, Matt? And it's like, this is, I've got a lot more to work with. And they just have not gone anywhere. I mean, you know, last year they were terrible at pass blocking. If you look at, you know, the, the, the saber metrics, the analytics on, on football outsiders, but they were a top 25 team when it came to run blocking this year, it's like, everything's gone to hell. You know, they've, they've, they've taken a step back. And I get that you lose two players to the NFL, and that's tough. But everyone in the country has to deal with this every year. Penn State is not an exception. And, I mean, it's still we're still seeing a lot of the same similar struggles. They brought in NFL personnel this year to, to help them with, you know, uh, you know, with defensive linemen who aren't just doing the swim move or the rip move, but are, are adding things to their repertoire. And, and it just it, it hasn't made a change. I mean, I guess what I'm getting at here is at some point it's either your, your, your personnel or it's your coaching and, and you've got to decide what it is. And I think we've seen enough coaching that uh, I, I think that Lime Grover has, has hindered the line. And, you know, I don't think this is going to get better if, uh, unless he's gone. And, uh, you know, that stinks to say, cause I, I really do think highly of him as a person, you know, I, I think he's a great guy, but uh, I think it's shown he's, he is not a great coach. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really mind-blowing because, like you said, the resume is good. Like, he, prior to Penn State, he has had really good offensive lines. For whatever reason, it's just not working here. And, you know, I will say, in, when it comes to pass blocking, Sean Clifford isn't exactly doing this offensive line any favors. That's very true, too. He's, he's had happy feet back there. He looks unsettled all the time. You know, if his first read's not there, you almost see a panic set in. And I think that goes back to part of the issues with Clifford and that, you know, if you're a Penn State fan, you want to see him improve from that standpoint. But, like, you're putting the O-line in a bad spot when you don't always – you know, when, when you're asking them to hold the ball for more than three or four seconds and all of a sudden, you know what I mean, everything is – it's going to break down when you have to do that. But but they've also not been good in run blocking either, like you said. Uh, it's just the line has been porous right now. They don't look like they're playing together like a unit. And I just think there is so much for them to improve on that I don't know if they can do it in the bye week. But this is their chance, you know, to sort of look back at the three weeks and w- what it has been and, and, and build upon it and grow from it. And if, you know, if they come out against Maryland and things go poorly, then, you know, maybe the writing is on the wall for Lime Grover at this point. If Because they've got to get it turned around and turned around quickly. And right now it, it doesn't seem like that's – we don't have a ton of reason to believe that that's going to happen. Well, well, let me ask you, I, you know, kind of veering off a little bit, John, but, but I am really curious, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this at some point, but – what was your preseason prediction? And after three weeks, do you think you were, you know, too, uh, too optimistic, too pessimistic? You think you were just right? Where is Penn State performing in relation to your preseason expectations? Yeah, so I had them at nine and three. Uh, and, you know, it's funny. <laughs> you look at the schedule. I, they, are, they are worse than I thought they would be, but I also would probably pick 10 and 2 now, if that makes <laughs> sense. Like, Because the, the three games that I had pegged were uh, Ohio State, Michigan, and Michigan State. And now you look at it, it's like, okay, Ohio State's still a loss, in my opinion. Uh, 
But Michigan State just lost to Arizona State when they were massive favorites at home. Uh, I mean, that is not a team that's instilling much confidence. I know that game's on the road, but that's still very much a winnable game for Penn State. Uh, and Michigan, I, I, I said before the season to, to a bunch of people that I thought they were an 8-4 and four team, but, like, you know, you sort of get lost. And when I was doing this prediction, I was like, well, you know, am I, am I, what am I missing? Because everyone else is predicting Michigan to be so great. And now I sort of feel justified uh, for that and kind of wish I would have gone 10-2 and two from the start because, I, again, I didn't believe this Michigan – the Michigan team is going to be a whiteout and everything. It will be a Beaver Stadium. It's a huge advantage for Penn State. So, right now, I would say 10-2 and two with, like, 11 – like, and honestly, the second loss is probably coming from somewhere that we don't expect because Minnesota hasn't been good. Uh, Purdue hasn't been good. I mean, the, the Big Ten has been weak, you know, as a whole, and I – I honestly don't think 11 and one is crazy. And I don't think Penn state has met the expectations that I, that I had for a nine and three team. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't necessarily disagree with anything you said. I was going to parrot a lot of it in that I predicted eight and four and honestly, they look worse than I expected. But if anything, I would, you know, bump up my, my win total by one, you know, or more because yeah, for as Penn State, as much as they have not met my expectations, neither has the Big Ten, and in in not even close. I mean, you know, for for reasons you just mentioned. I mean, even with, with Penn State, even if we look at, at the Buffalo game, you know, a lot of people afterwards saying, you know what, this is this is going to be a good team. This is going to be a good team, and then they just got killed by Liberty. I mean, which, yeah, I mean that's that's not a good look. So you know, and you know, Pitt. Uh, you know, I mean, what was it? Uh, how many points did Miami score against them? Ten? I mean, Penn State has not. Uh, Penn State has not looked very good in the FBS. Yeah. Okay, you know, they could, they could, they could win the FCS championship. You know, good for Penn State. But the entire Big Ten. I mean, outside of Ohio State, who is the best team in the Big Ten? And you go by process of elimination. I mean, hell, it might be Penn State. It's probably Penn State or Iowa at this point. Like, and I mean, Iowa, I mean, they didn't exactly look good the, the last two weeks either. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it, it is really wild. But, I mean, I, I just feel like we're, we're going through one of those weird cycles where, I mean, you look at the ACC, I mean, you could say the same thing. Outside of Clemson, who's good here? You know, I think the Big Ten is the same way. Outside of Ohio State, really, who's, who's good here? Wisconsin? I mean, yeah, they've got a great running back, but – Show me the last year they were multidimensional. I mean, it's just it, – it, it, is, it is wild. But, yeah, I mean, goodness, Penn State might be the second best Big Ten team. And, and I think they've got a real chance here to take advantage of that because they have three weeks before things start to get questionable again. I think Maryland – I mean, after we saw Maryland oh, against them, I mean, and trying to run week. Anthony McFarlane in at the one over and over again, Mike, Lox, Mike Loxley, that's not going to work. It didn't work against Temple. Please stop trying it. Like, if – if they play like that against Penn State, they are going to lose, and they might lose big because they played horribly. As much as we, you know, we we ride Penn State about how they played, Maryland yeah. was just brutal. I mean, that's just it. I, both of these teams are so inconsistent. I mean, uh, and two, the fact that Syracuse, okay, Syracuse probably not a great team after all. You know, we were all kind of watching Maryland beat Syracuse with the perspective that, hey, this Syracuse team is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's kind of gone out the window now, uh, but. You know, I just I, – I don't know, John. I just uh, – I was really looking forward to this Maryland game. Uh, you know, you had you – know, tickets were going to be sold out. It was going to be on a Friday. You know, uh, what, classes were, were letting out earlier, you know, that, that, that Friday. But, 
you know, then Maryland loses to Temple. And I just feel like that's just so deflating. It could have been a quality win for Penn State. And instead, you know, Penn State's kind of in the, the same situation they were. They win, they're supposed to, and they lose. I mean, that's going to be a, a big, you know, strike against them. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like Penn State doesn't have a whole lot to look forward to until, you know, the, the, the schedule gets a little bit tougher in the next few weeks. Yeah, and, and to go back to what I was saying, though, this sort of presents a chance then, I think. Yeah. Because you were looking at basically a bye week and then, then a brutal schedule because we thought Maryland and Purdue were going to be very good teams. And now it sort of looks like that might not be the case. So you might sort of get the chance to gel a little more here. You know, you might – they, the Maryland game might not be pretty, but maybe it's the one that started, starts to get this thing put together, and then you go into Purdue, and maybe you win big at home. You know, on homecoming, it's a noon kick, and, you know, that sort of gets the ball rolling because after that, then things get brutal. You go to Iowa, you have the, the whiteout game at home, and then you go to Michigan State. But I think they've got a chance to sort of take advantage of this opportunity and put together some momentum. And maybe if, you know, let's say they beat Maryland, Purdue, and Iowa, and then go into the whiteout undefeated and win that game, then you're looking at, Going to Michigan State, which has, you know, obviously been a letdown for them in the past when they play Michigan State after a big game, which seems to happen on a recurring basis. And then at a Minnesota team that hasn't been good. Uh, at home against an Indiana team that, you know, just got destroyed by Ohio State in Bloomington. And then, you know, then it's the, the game that everyone's going to want to see. Maybe Rutgers? No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe the, that Thanksgiving weekend game. I think that's Thanksgiving. No, it's the weekend before. Th- I don't know. I don't know holidays well. Excuse me on that one. But like, <laughs> you have Ohio State is it November 23rd November 23rd and then you have Rutgers yes and and that you know that Ohio State game there's a chance both teams are undefeated and I don't think yeah I mean let's I I mean maybe I mean you got to get past Michigan Michigan State Iowa I mean you know those are three coin flips like you know, maybe there's a 15% chance Penn State's undefeated. Let's not go crazy, John. Well, the, the thing is, uh, the, but basically, to go back to the point, if they can put it together those few weeks, then yeah. those games are no longer coin flips. Like I said, I, I'm not a believer in Michigan at all. I think they lose to Wisconsin this weekend. Uh, you'll see that and obviously other things in our other games that we predict this week. But, you know, I, I don't think that, that winning those three games is that crazy now that we've seen Michigan yeah. get exposed by an Army team. Michigan's offense is bad. It's worse than Penn State's. Yeah, Josh Gaddis might be gone after this season yeah. too. So maybe maybe James Franklin was right in promoting Ronnie and not Gaddis. Oh man, like, just watch out for that James Franklin coaching yeah. tree. <laughs> but you know, and then that Michigan State team, they lost to Arizona State at home. Like I mean, and they couldn't score against Arizona State. I don't have any reason to believe in them either. The only thing that makes me hesitate is this has notoriously been a trap game for Penn State in the past. Uh, but. You know, I think the real test there is at Iowa. And if that's a day game, Kinnick is not the same during the day as it is at night. I don't think many people would disagree with that. So if that's a day game instead of a night game, that all of a sudden becomes much more winnable. And then, you know, all of a sudden the three hardest games on the schedule before Ohio State are realistic wins. And, you know, I don't think anyone would have expected us to say that after, you know, we also said Penn State hasn't played well for three weeks. But that's just how the Big Ten has gone. You know, they've just been brutal this year. And, you know, I – I don't think I would be surprised if Penn State goes 11 and 1 this year at this point. Like, I know that sounds crazy, I mean, but like, it's where we're at, me at this point. I mean, you can't help but draw some parallels to 2016 just because in 2016, everybody counts Penn State out. You know, they, they, they come together, you know, they, they, they're a second half team, and, uh, you know, they end up winning the Big Ten championship. And, and this year, you know, John, it's, it's just, it's strange because, I mean, that's just it. You know, like this team puts it together you know, like they did in 2016, they put it together, you know, the month of October, they're unstoppable. I mean, this, this team is, you know, going to be in the conversation for a college football playoff berth, which 
again, is, is it's crazy because I mean, you, you look at all the issues on this team and I mean, geez, they're, they're, they're tenfold. I mean, okay. Sean Clifford hasn't progressed, you know, as, as fast as, as we thought they would The running back rotation uh, definitely has some hiccups and the main ball carrier you thought you were going to have uh, isn't quite working out. Um, okay. The receivers do look a lot better. You know, jobs are still somewhat of an issue and you do have to worry about not, not necessarily depth, but you know, there are guys like Daniel George and, the offensive line uh, train wreck is, is, you know, how some people might describe that. Um, and on defense, it's, you know, bend, don't break, but they haven't exactly been, you know, living up to expectations with, you know, the pass rush, for example, uh, against Pitt. Um, when you have one of the best defensive lines in the country, allegedly, uh, you should have more than zero sacks in the first half against a quarterback that doesn't have a great history and, you know, I think he completed about 78% of his passes in the first half. I mean, this, it's, just, it's just a very odd way to start the season for a team that's just oozing with talent. Yeah, and I sort of wanted to talk about the pass rush more, but also, like, I don't know that there's a ton to say. They just haven't been that good, and I don't know that there's a good reason for it either. You know, I think they've gotten a decent amount of pressures. They're just not finishing the job and getting there. You know, it's – it's it's been weird. Uh, I would say I don't. I mean, Kenny Pickett too. He did do a good job of, of getting the ball out quickly. You know, in the first half. You know, I certainly think you know it was the the dink and doink, you know, types of passes where you know it's difficult to to defend. But but yeah, I mean, still certainly you expected to to see them you know get their hands in the face or or more coverage sacks or, I mean, geez, you know, just anything. Yeah, and and you know, I don't know that there's much more to say on it than that. It's just. It's kind of, like I said, it's kind of been weird. Uh, you, we expected this unit to be a strength. James Franklin said as much after the game on Saturday, and it just hasn't been to this point. Uh, I don't think that's going to sustain, though. I, yeah, I, yeah. That's why, you know, it's, it's almost not worth talking about it because I think we both expect them to be much better the rest of the year, and I think we see that starting with Maryland. And I'm not, you know, if I'm, not a, if I'm a Penn State fan, I'm not concerned about it. This, team's, this group's too talented and, you know, proven to be too good to, to let it affect them. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, the, with the defensive line, they have all this talent, and they've got a proven position coach in Sean Spencer, and they've got a proven defensive coordinator in Brent Pry. In offense, I feel like we're a little less bullish because we you, you don't have proven commodities there. You, you have talent that, you know, hasn't kind of been, uh, uh, you know, tested, uh, you know, in the offensive line, like, you know, uh, you know, Walker, uh, you know, is great, but, you know, we haven't seen enough of him. C.J. Thorpe is still trying to kind of come into his own, even though, you know, he's a mean, aggressive guy who, you know, is great in run blocking. Like, it's just, it's interesting going from, you know, one to the other. You know, why do you feel, you know, good about the defensive line, but but not the offensive line if both aren't, both aren't doing well? But they're both completely different situations. And, yeah, I mean, the only thing you can say is, we'll know a little bit more next week and we'll know a little bit more the week after that. And uh, it's just kind of a shame that Maryland isn't going to teach us nearly as much as we thought it was. Yeah. And you know, it's like you said, I think that's a big takeaway from this weekend too, that, that this upcoming game, which was supposed to be the first real test maybe isn't, I mean, maybe it is, you know, maybe they, they put up a a big time fight and this is a close game. Uh, But also maybe that's because Penn state isn't good enough. You know, you know, we'll find out next week. Uh, you know, I think this has been a really good discussion of what has been, you know, a, I don't want to say tumultuous because it's not been crazy, but like sort of a weird non-conference slate for Penn State. Expectations were they, – they didn't meet expectations, but also they're probably going to finish better than we thought. And, you know, it's just yeah. – I mean, hey, you know, it didn't meet expectations, but you're the number 13 team in the country. I mean, yeah. 
that's not a bad trade off if you're a fan. Yeah, and I, and I would imagine you know that that most fans would would love ten and two this year, especially with the expectations going in and the uncertainty of quarterback. So, you know. Maybe this year, even if it doesn't go as well as they thought, maybe it turns out better than they thought, too. And, you know, this is that launching point that we had previously talked about into being a real contender next year when this talent ages a little bit. Yeah, next year has got to be the year. Yep, for sure. And, you know, that, like I said, it was – I think we covered a lot this week. And, you know, we'll be back next week again, you know, previewing Maryland. Uh, we'll be back every week. Yeah, yes, yes, every single week. But we'll be back next time, next week, uh, to talk about the uh, – the Maryland game and, you know, all that comes with that. I think that's going to be, you know, it'll be interesting now. It's no longer, like I said, the test that I thought it, that we thought it would be, but it's, it's sort of maybe if it is, then things are going poorly for Penn state again. And then maybe you start to worry a little bit more, uh, but also maybe the rest of the big 10 somehow does worse. And then, then Penn state's all of a sudden looking at 12 and 0 is a real possibility if everything falls apart in, uh, in Columbus too. But, you know, that, that's probably not going to happen based on what we've seen from them. Uh, but, you know, that'll, that'll do it for this week's episode of Airing It Out. Uh, you can find us, as always, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, really wherever you think you can find a podcast, you can probably find this one. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you download. And, and as always, listen to us every week. Uh, if you want to read Josh and I's writing, you can subscribe to a sports pass from the Center Daily Times at centerdaily.com backslash sports podcast. That's center, C-E-N-T-R-E. Uh, and then, of course, you can follow us both on Twitter. Josh is at by Josh Moyer. I am at John Sauber. Uh, thanks for tuning in, and everybody have a great day.